Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Faith and Wealth, Gospel Lessons, Wall Street Examples. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, September the 19th, 2010. One of my favorite cartoons comes from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. It pictures a man who's died standing before the pearly gates. The celestial gatekeeper who sports wings and a halo stares down at the supplicant and advises him, Charitable giving isn't the ultimate test of one's humanity, but it gives us some numbers to play with. In the Gospel from Luke 16, 1-13 for this week, which is one of the craziest stories in the entire Bible, with one of the hardest-hitting punchlines, Jesus says something similar. He says that how we relate to money is an important barometer of how we relate to God. The parable begins with the words, There was a rich man. And it ends with a stark warning to people who, quote, loved money, end quote. The next story in Luke 16, verse 19, begins exactly the same way. There was a rich man, it says. Although this parable considers wealth from the vantage point of the poor and not the rich. So, Jesus didn't hesitate to use money as a yardstick to measure our spiritual health. Luke's parable sounds crazy because the rich man in the story praises the dishonesty of his money manager, even though he fired him for poor performance. Knowing he would be fired, the money manager cooked the books of his boss's clients to their advantage so that they would owe him favors when he was unemployed. The commendation is directed not towards the manager's dishonesty, per se, but rather for acting shrewdly in regards to what he cared most about, money, and for averting a future catastrophe. Jesus then continues the story by drawing a parallel to the effect that if worldly people are so shrewd in regards to something as insignificant as money, note the irony of Jesus, should not believers be even more shrewd about the true riches of life in the kingdom of God? Then, in a final twist, Jesus joins the two strands and concludes with a stark warning. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The story could have ended there, but Luke then includes the response of the audience. He writes, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. End quote. That Jesus characterizes the Pharisees as lovers of money is revealing, because by outward standards they were the most religiously scrupulous and zealous people of their day. They fasted, tithed, and observed the Sabbath with impeccable rigor. 
and yet we learn from them it's possible to be very religious and yet a lover of money. Their deeper problem with money, said Jesus, revealed itself in a subtle but telling trait, self-justification. Jesus said, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. However much the Pharisees related to money with a sort of external religious righteousness, their self-justification indicated that something deeper, something more corrosive and pernicious infected their hearts. They, quote-unquote, highly valued money. It was their, quote-unquote, master whom they loved and served. Whereas in the upside-down kingdom of God, Jesus suggests that at best money is insignificant, and at worst it is, quote-unquote, highly detestable. 16, verse 15. Two other texts for this week connect wealth and discipleship, but they do so from the perspective of the poor rather than the rich. Amos chapter 8, 4 to 7, and Psalm 113 both speak of the poor, the needy, and the barren. How we treat money and how we treat the poor are two sides of the opposite coin. The psalmist describes the high and mighty God as one who nevertheless stoops down from the heavens to tenderly care for the poor. He longs to raise the poor from the dust and lift the needy from the ash heap. He would reverse their fortunes and seat them with princes. Psalm 113, 5 to 8. The poor can be poor for many reasons. Laziness, sickness, poor skills, bad luck, economic downturns, lack of educational opportunity, and so on. But Amos employs extraordinarily graphic and harsh language to remind us that some people are poor because rich people exploit them. Hear this, you who trample the needy, who do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat? skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. This text from Amos 8 becomes all the more powerful when we remember how often the rich blame the poor for their misfortune, when in fact Amos says that it's the rich who trample the needy. This summer I read Michael Lewis's bestseller about the 2008 collapse of the financial markets. The name of the book is The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine. If Amos had written today, he could have included parts of the book in his prophecy. I still don't understand interest rate swaps mezzanine collateralized debt obligations, or credit default swaps. But according to Lewis, that's exactly how the rich Wall Streeters wanted it. No ordinary human being, writes Lewis, 
had ever heard of these credit default swaps, or if the people behind them had their way, ever would. By design, they were arcane, opaque, illiquid, and thus conveniently difficult for anyone except their creators to price. Because of deliberate non-disclosure, accounting fraud, and hiding risk and complexity, hardly anyone could understand a subprime mortgage-backed collateral debt obligation, he says. Not the clueless rating agencies, Moody's and S&P, not the hapless SEC, not investors, not Ben Bernanke, and not Bank of America's CEO, Ken Lewis. Credit default swaps fed, fed upon the subprime mortgage boom, which made it possible, Lewis recounts, for a Las Vegas stripper to own five investment properties, or for a strawberry picker with an income of $14,000 to buy a $700,000 house. These mortgages to people, one broken refrigerator from default, many of which required no proof of employment, income, or money down, were designed to fail, says Lewis, which is to say they were designed to exploit the poor, so that the poor borrowers were forced to refinance with even riskier loans from the rich banks. Subprime mortgages with floating rates eventually comprised about 80% of the mortgages. In the end, we, the taxpayers, paid when the stripper and the strawberry picker defaulted on their loans. We also bailed out the Wall Street executives who still earned tens of millions of dollars for their putative work. But not all the news on Wall Street is bad. A wonderfully positive story has emerged that could easily be part of the Luke 16 parable in which, quote, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, Luke 16.8. On June 16, 2010, Warren Buffett published a letter in which he pledged to give away 99% of his wealth to charity. The letter also announced his collaboration with Bill Gates to challenge some of the wealthiest people in the world to pledge half their wealth to charity. Their challenge was also explained in a long follow-up article. After making about 80 phone calls, some 40 people have said yes to their appeal. So I've been wondering and asking my friends, where is our Luke chapter 16 specifically Christian version of the Buffett challenge? So far, no one has any answers. For books this week, I reviewed Diarmaid McCulloch, Christianity, the First 3,000 Years, New York, Viking, 2010, it's a long book, 1,161 pages. Beginning as an obscure sect of first-century Judaism, with roots that reach back a thousand years earlier, and thus the book's subtitle, today Christianity is the world's largest religion. 
Today, observes D.R. Maiden McCullough on the last page of his panoramic sweep of those 3,000 years, Christianity's main problems have to do with its success. In the last 100 years, it has grown almost fourfold to two billion adherents. And so his book tells a story that has no ending. But despite these successes, after reading a thousand pages, it's hard not to agree with McCulloch that the story also contains, quote, plenty of sobering messages for overconfidence, end quote. McCulloch tells the Christian story in all its staggering diversity, with attention paid not only to the Latin West, Catholic and Protestant, and to the Orthodox East, but also to the believers whose stories have been deliberately marginalized or conveniently forgotten. Syriac non-Chalcedonian churches, both Miaphysite and Diaphysite, the mission impulse of the earliest believers for good and ill is also a constant theme. To take just one example, in the year 635, Bishop Alupan arrived in China to spread the Christian story. In telling the Christian story, McCulloch also raises important questions. For at the heart of the at the heart of Christianity, there resides a deep paradox about a God who was transcendent and therefore unnameable, but also imminent and therefore deeply personal. McCullough comes from a three-generation family of Anglican priests and describes his years growing up in country parishes as, as quote, the happiest memories. I would now describe myself as a candid friend of Christianity. Majestic in scope and meticulous in scholarship, McCulloch has written the new gold standard for a one-volume history of Christianity. The 68 full-color plates of art, architecture, sculpture, and photographs, and the hundred pages of footnotes and bibliography for further reading are alone worth the price of the book. Although the book is expensive and retails for $45, on Amazon you can purchase a new hardback copy for under $25. The title of the book is Christianity, the First 3,000 Years. The author, Diarmaid McCulloch. For film this week, we move to the continent of Africa and the unlikely country of Sierra Leone. The title of the film, Sierra Leone's Refugee All-Stars, from the year 2005. From 1991 to 2002, a brutal civil war ravaged the West African country of Sierra Leone. And as a result, tens of thousands of people fled to refugee camps in neighboring Guinea. This documentary film tells the stories of six refugees who formed a band and used music, as one of them put it, to de-traumatize his deplaced people. I just took all the problems, all the sufferings of our people, and made a song about it. Much of the movie shows them making music with lyrics that give, that give witness to what they suffered. Displacement, malnutrition, 
mutilation, destruction of families and villages, and then in the refugee camps, strange dialects, unusual diets, sleeping on tarps. As one of the songs puts it, in the life of a refugee, today you settle, tomorrow you pack. After seven years in Guinea, the band returned to Sierra Leone with the help of the UNHCR and recorded an album, and then later repatriated permanently. Although this film does not cover their later history, the band eventually sang in tours all around the world. Just a word of warning, some of the images and interviews about the war are extremely graphic. The film is in English and Creole with English subtitles. Sierra Leone's Refugee All-Stars, a film from Sierra Leone that I got on Netflix. And finally, in keeping with our theme of wealth and poverty, we've posted a poem by Anna Kaminska, who lived from 1920 to 1986. The title of the poem, Those Who Carry. Those who carry pianos to the tenth floor wardrobes and coffins. An old man with a bundle of wood limps beyond the horizon. A woman with a hump of nettles. A mad woman pushing a pram full of vodka bottles. They will all be lifted like a gull's feather like a dry leaf, like an eggshell, a scrap of newspaper. Blessed are those who carry, for they shall be lifted. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September the 19th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.